0: on this edition of fedgov today with francis rose driving data for making personnel decisions and a transformation coming for the space force it's tuesday may 2nd 2023 welcome to fedgov today with francis rose The next episode of the FedGov Today television show is coming this Sunday morning on ABC7 in Washington, D.C. at 1030. My guests include the director of the Defense Information Systems Agency, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner. If you miss any episodes of the TV show or the podcast, you can always find them on demand at FedGovToday.com. The Office of Personnel Management's new data strategy includes four goals. OPM says those four goals will push the agency toward becoming, quote, the nation's premier employer and provider of human capital data. Robert Shea is chief executive officer of GovNavigators. He's former associate director at the Office of Management and Budget. Robert, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's your sense as you scan this data strategy? Of what the value will be, not just to OPM, but to the agencies across government that they serve. Welcome.
1: Great to be with you, Francis. Well, you know, uh, the federal government employs more people than any other organization on the planet. Recruiting and retaining the talent they need to accomplish their missions is what agency leaders say is the number one challenge they face. And so OPM has sort of laid a roadmap out for how. They are going to leverage data to show how they're performing, to show how the rest of the uh, government is performing uh, as far as recruiting and retaining talent. Do they have the skills they need to get their job? And if not, how how much better are they doing over time getting there?
0: There are four goals, as I said, in this plan. The first one is developing a data-driven culture and workforce. And as you and I have discussed 10,000 times, if we've discussed it once, developing a data-driven culture is probably going to be a lot more challenging than developing
1: a data-driven workforce, right? Yeah, absolutely. But what struck me about this goal is that it's a government-wide goal. It's not an OPM-focused goal. And they're not focusing on data, per se, as you suggest. They're talking about a data culture, making sure that the people uh, with these skills across government are helping grow this culture, this data-driven, dare I say, evidence-based culture. Across government. There you go again with your evidence-based stuff,
0: Commissioner. could um, Yeah, help it. So, so for people who don't know, uh, you and I used to do a show called Fed Heads, and every time that the subject of evidence-based policymaking came up, you would remind me on that show that you were a commissioner on the Commission for Evidence-Based Policymaking that resulted in a lot of the data legislation that things like this are being driven from so maybe I'm touched I touched you brought it up I'm touched you brought it up well first. and maybe I should give you more credit than I did then because <laughs> I used to just give you just no no, no no hard no time don't start now oh, don't start now oh okay no I won't be nice to you now then either um, seriously though what does a data-driven culture look like in your view uh, when
1: it's mature Robert I I think it's a culture that values data make sure that we're filling data gaps that we're making use of the data we've got, that we're being transparent about the data, that you can really point to the decisions that data has driven and that performance has improved as a result of that. All
0: right. The second goal is delivering high-quality data products to inform decision-making. So – uh, there's two things here the data products what are those data products is one thing that i wonder about and then the second is what qualifies those data products as high quality how and how does one know that this or that data product
1: is high quality when one sees it yeah it's a very good question there are methodologies that can be used to assess the quality of the data Uh, but as far as products are concerned the real uh, evidence is going to be in their use two dashboards they put up, one on the cyber workforce, and one on on uh, the um, federal employee viewpoint survey data. And I think those are two really good customer focus uh, da- dashboards, ones that really have a population hungry for that data, and that if you visit it over time, you can see progress m- being made in those areas, improving the hiring process, for instance, or filling cyber security skill gaps across the government see this is why i
0: talked to you too because well it's not the only reason but this is one reason because i Mm -hmm. was focused on the words deliver high quality data products in goal number two and you just focused on the to inform decision making piece of goal number two which i guess is the whole point the point is not to make data products the point is to make better decisions about human capital at opm and across government
1: but it's a little circular, right? Mm-hmm. So it, da- we want to make sure that the data we're publishing is of high quality. But don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Mm-hmm. Put it out there in a form that people can use it. Shortcomings will become evident, and then those that data can be improved as greater use is being made of the data. Is, is that, y- that y- yeah? That, that makes sense? that
0: makes perfect sense. But I wonder if government is getting any better at being accepting of that idea because I recall I think it was I think it was when the data. F- first data sets came out around TARP that would have been what like 2008 2009 something like that yeah right and people just lost their minds on the hill people in the in the media lost their minds because this data indicated that I I think I remember this right that there were 16 congressional districts in Maryland and there's only eight and somebody typed in something wrong or somebody accident. I don't know, who knows what happened, but it was just a mistake. It was, it just, and it got fixed and people moved on, but it just gave people another opportunity to go, oh, this data is not right. And we don't know if we can trust it and all of that. And I wonder if we've gotten better. And, and also by the way, that issue, I think caused a lot of agencies to say, we're going to guard our data a lot more tightly than we should. And I wonder if that mindset I guess that goes back to the data-driven culture piece that we talked about a moment ago but I wonder if people are getting better about saying yeah
1: we know there's going to be stuff that are that is not right here and we'll fix it as we can and move on it's like the metaphor of the skin knee you want your you want you want to let your kid skin their knee a couple of times so they're not so afraid of being active you don't want to shelter them you want to put the data out there and suffer the slings and arrows of faulty data so that it You can find out where those gaps are and and fill them.
0: Uh, The third goal is leveraging technology and standards to enable uh, advanced analytics. And this seems to me to be, as I'm thinking about these and was looking at them earlier, it seems like they kind of intentionally one drives the next one. Because I don't know if technology and standards do you much good if you don't have high quality data products, which is the point of goal two. Leveraging that technology and standards in Goal Three is not probably going to work very well.
1: That's right, but also embedded here is the fact that workforce data alone, though valuable, is much more powerful when linked and integrated with other data sets. And I, I think, he, and technology is evolving so rapidly. Uh, artificial intelligence being the latest area in which. Data quality and security concerns are paramount, but I, I, I think in this goal, you can see uh, the opportunity to leverage that those advancements in technology integration with other data sets to unlock a lot of insights uh, that can help a lot of agencies improve their operations.
0: I guess the encouraging thing about goal number three is my understanding, at least, is that the technology and and now the standards for data exist. And it's more a matter of implementation and execution than it is
1: conception and and uh, and putting them together. I, you know, one of the things you can see quickly with the dashboards that OPM has shared is that they rely on widely available technology. So folks are comfortable with uh, the tools that have been used to develop those dashboards. Um, likely, we'll see advancements in those technologies over time.
0: What do you think the most useful advancements for those technologies would be? Or is there even a way really to say that since we don't know what the future holds?
1: I mean, it it is hard to say which ones would be most valuable. I think, and I don't want to get ahead of you, but I think they ought to be in in the realm of security, technology that can ensure the posting and sharing of this data in a secure way. Um, uh, those, those advancements should be applied uh, pretty quickly.
0: All right. Goal four is develop and implement strong data governance. That's, again, seems to me to be a progressive goal, uh, not, I don't mean politically progressive, just uh, chronologically progressive, based on achieving at least some success with goal number three. Goal number three is dependent on achieving at least some
1: success with goal two and so on. I do think governance is the foundation of this, mm-hmm. making sure that responsibility for the availability and quality and security of the data, um, that there's accountability for that. You know, it occurs to me pretty bold of OPM to put a goal out there around security when they're responsible for one of the most sensitive data breaches in our government's history. So they're stepping up here. Saying that security of the data over which they have custody is paramount. All right. You are, in my opinion, one of the
0: preeminent experts on the president's management agenda. What, if any, intersection do you see between the PMA and this OPM uh, data strategy?
1: If data and transparency are critical to improving performance, then this strategy is critical to achieving Uh, the main pillar, not the main pillar, but the preeminent pillar, perhaps, of the President's Management Agenda, which is focused on ensuring uh, the government has the workforce it needs to accomplish its varied missions. All right. There's a lot here in this uh, data strategy, and
0: uh, I congratulate Ted Kauke. I know he's been working on this pretty much ever since he walked in the door at OPM, and I'm grateful to have you on to talk about it with me, Robert.
1: I appreciate it. You're you're right to call him out. His leadership of this and the CDO Council are to be Celebrate!
0: You can find a link to
1: OPM's data strategy in today's show notes at
0: fedgovtoday.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of FedGov Today, headed to TechNet Cyber, AFCEA's flagship event today through Thursday in Baltimore. Cyber leaders from DISA, the DOD CIO's office, and Cyber Command are exploring, networking, and planning for the whole of government effort to meet global cybersecurity challenges. You can learn more and sign up at event.afcea.org slash AFCEA Cyber23 Tree and on the events page at fedgovtoday.com. A deep transformations coming for the Space Force, according to the Secretary of the Air Force. That transformation is necessary because of China's priority in space. Frank Kendall the 26th Secretary of the Air Force. On Sunday's episode of FedGov Today TV, he explained why he focused on space transformation at the recent space symposium.
2: The analogy I make, Francis, is that the the U.S. has a Space Force, which is somewhat as if a nation had a merchant marine and woke up one day and decided it needed a Navy. We have to really move to a totally different concept uh, for national security use of space. Uh, The reason for that is simple. We're, We're threatened now in a way that we haven't been before. So we have to be much more resilient. Uh, we also have to be able to protect uh, our terrestrial assets, the rest of the joint force, from, from threats from space, particularly targeting centers by other nations.
0: What does that mean for what General uh, Brown and General Saltzman need to do with their individual services and then keeping them knit together as they are right now?
2: Well we have to knit all the joint force together. Space is a huge part of that because space communications are going to become an increasingly important part of our military communications overall. So integrating both the Air Force, the Navy and the Air Force, and the Marine Corps all together through space-based capabilities is really one of the things that the Space Force has to provide.
0: It is budget season of course in Washington. You're very active this time of year on Capitol Hill and I quote Again, uh, from Breaking Defense about the Space Symposium, uh, Secretary Kendall noted the Department of the Air Force alone has 12 new starts that it's been waiting to initiate for over a year, a delay caused by the use of continuing resolutions. How is that holding you back from the capabilities that you need that you just described, Frank?
2: We're in a race for technological superiority, uh, military technological superiority, particularly with China. Um, And I'm now in a position of, I I used this this morning, Uh, if you know the movie Casablanca, where the refugees come to Casablanca and wait and wait and wait, I'm waiting. Mm -hmm. What I'm waiting for is money. Uh, We did the work the first year I was in office to define the things we need to do. We were able, over the past year, to get that into the Defense Department's budget and up to Capitol Hill. Now we're waiting for the Hill to act. I have an initiative that would allow us to start much more quickly, which I hope the Congress will look at favorably. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we've got 12 new starts that are in the budget that I can't really get started with until Congress acts. A continuing resolution won't solve that problem. I need actual authorization as well as funding. So we're we're in a mode of trying to make that case to ensure if we do have a continuing resolution, at least it's a short one and not something that carries on until the next year terribly far.
0: How would that initiative work? What would you be able to do that you can't do now as far as trying to get a head start on some of these programs?
2: Uh, the initiative is something I've been arguing for for decades. It would give us limited authority to initiate programs before formal authorization. And we would confine our activities to early stage activities, maintain competition, we'd notify the Congress, uh, we wouldn't go past preliminary design review, one of the very early milestones, but it would allow us to shave up to two years, a year and a half nominal a year certainly off of our lead time to fielding capabilities it would be an enormous uh, advantage to be able to do that and and correct a, a period of time right now which essentially goes by while, as I am today you, you wait for funding
0: are there other things that you can do maybe informed by your experiences at and to try to drive change in the acquisition program because every single uniform person that I talk to talks about speed and the need to get these capabilities in the hands of warfighters faster.
2: The, the guidance I've given to my acquisition people is structure programs to get meaningful military capability as quickly as possible. Uh, I'm not that interested in experiments or one of a type or a couple of prototypes. I want to get to production and get to meaningful quantities and so our our programs are being structured to make that happen.
0: You are getting, uh, you're making progress in some of these areas. What do you need to happen next? Who needs to do what, and particularly in Congress, who needs to do what to give you what you need?
2: Uh, Basically, we need to pass both authorization bills and, and the budget and the appropriations. We've had hearings before the appropriators, I think those went very well. We have our first authorization hearing later this week and then another one next week. Um, I'm just looking for timely action from the Congress. It, it's been years since we had uh, did not have a continuing resolution. That that would be ideal, it would be to act on time and do what the Congress's role is and fulfill that responsibility.
0: Regarding this idea to be able to get head starts as you've described, any sense yet from Capitol Hill about which way they might lean? Is this something that you're getting a potential thumbs up on at least?
2: I, I think there is an appreciation of the need to move quickly and this is a Way to do that, which is I call it low-hanging fruit. Uh, there's very little penalty. Congress does give up a little bit of control, but not very much, and it allows us to gain quite a substantial amount of time uh, that we wouldn't have otherwise. So I think that's a the, the short answer to your question is I've had generally favorable responses, and I hopefully we'll be able to make the case.
0: When you make that case, what are the things that are that speak to the concerns that the members have? Uh, that that they want to make sure they have in place so that you can give them those assurances.
2: Uh, I think they don't want a long-term commitment they want us to kind of you know keep it reasonable and give them a time to a chance to interact and review and decide whether they would let us continue or not and I think that's a reasonable thing to ask for.
0: A lot of discussion about what the composition of the force is what the programs are programs of record and so Mm -hmm. on what do you need equipment wise what's in the budget that you're particularly advocating for on the Hill?
2: Well, the new space systems that we talked about, more resilient capabilities, counter space capabilities, um, uh, one of the new starts is an uncrewed collaborative combat aircraft, essentially an uncrewed aircraft that is, accompanies a manned aircraft, to which, which is its controller, maybe three or four of those uncrewed collaborative combat aircraft. All controlled like a play caller, basically in the in the manned aircraft, and then they operate together as a formation. That's something that we're headed towards production in meaningful quantities. I've talked about a thousand as a reasonable planning number to start with. Uh, getting that one started and moving it forward, I think, is, is one of the imperatives we have. What
0: are the what does the future look like in that respect? Because I think it was maybe just three, four, five years ago, people talked about drone swarms, particularly in the Air Force, and it seemed like it was something that was far away. The way you're describing it, it's here today.
2: And one of the things that I noted when I was out of government with this is that there was a lot of progress in relevant technologies. There was a DARPA ACE program, there was a Loyal Wingman program that Australia did with Boeing, uh, the Skyberg program that the Air Force did. And some work that the Navy did as well on their uh, carrier based on crew combat aircraft. So the technology I think is there to support it. I had my scientific advisory board take a look at this just to confirm that I would, my intuition was correct. And they came back and, and agreed that the, after an extensive review that um, the technology is ready and we can set reasonable requirements and have a good expectation of meeting them.
0: You and I have talked about requirements a thousand times in the last ten years if we've talked about it once. What are you able to do now as the secretary? to set reasonable requirements for the programs, not just that are in progress now, but that you're just starting on today?
2: That's a great question. Uh, the work that I did the first year I was in office was under the rubric of operational imperatives. These were seven problems that we had to solve operationally. Each of the teams that was attacking those problems was co-led by an operator and an acquisition or a technology person. And that that brought those people together to define, you know, reasonable, uh, achievable requirements that would take advantage of the technology that was available but not be an overreach and impossible to meet. And mm-hmm. you know, I think that that's led to a, a sound own set of recommendations for these 12 new starts that I talked about earlier.
0: Is that something that you devise as AT&L, is that something that you borrowed from one of the other services, authored new for the Air Force, some combination of all of those things?
2: Some combination of the last 50 years of experience. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what the exact part, parts were, but uh, I've, I've seen it done wrong a few times and I think that's given me some idea about how to do it right.
0: We have about a minute left, Mr. Secretary. What's different about being the Secretary of a Service compared to being in OSD as you were? the last time you were in government?
2: The, the relationship between service secretaries and their service chiefs is a unique management relationship. I've been very, very lucky to have General Brown, General Raymond, and now General Saltzman uh, as my partners, essentially, in, in leading the Department of the Air Force. Uh, I think we've been able to make an enormous amount of progress together. My mantra has been one team, one fight, and that, that applies very broadly, but it particularly applies within the, within the Department of the Air Force. We operate the headquarters as one entity. You know, there's a service staff for the... Air Force and the Space Force as well as the Secretariat, but we all work together with a common set of goals. And I've been really delighted with the cooperation I've had. Uh, the, the other thing that's unique, I think, about this job compared to what I did before is it's a line job as opposed to a staff job. And I think that's given me a lot more latitude to, to make positive change and move forward.
0: You can watch the entire interview with Secretary Kendall and the entire episode of FedGov Today TV at FedGovToday.com. FedGov Today is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. You can follow the show on any of those platforms so you don't miss the next episode of FedGov Today with Francis Rose. It's coming on Thursday. Hope you'll join me then. Thanks for listening.